and we're going to get going. All right, go live. Boom. Let's see here. It's going to start. Hey, everybody, Raylene Casper White here with another especially festive episode of X-Ray. I am here with iconic Irish author Roddy Doyle, straight from Dublin. Hey, Rod. Hello. <laughs> now, I know that Ireland, their, their Wi-Fi is a little iffy, so it might be, we might be a little broken up. I'm going to put it all on you, Roddy, because I'm, I'm in America. We have everything here that moves fast and big. Okay. Yeah, I'm mad enough to take the blame. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's my fault. That's good. You have a happy marriage, I imagine. That always contributes to a happy marriage. I'm, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Now, Roddy, is that short for Roderick, and is that a common Irish name? What's the story there? It is short for Roderick, and it's not a common Irish name. Uh, my father was called Rory, but he was on his birth cert, it says Roderick. So I was named after him. Okay. And he was named after a man who was executed during the Irish Civil War. Okay. My father was born on the 8th of December, 1923, and this man, Rory O'Connor, was executed. He was on the Republican side. He was executed on the 8th of December 1922. And um, he was Roderick O'Connor, but then made an Irish version of his name, Rory O'Connor, as a lot of people did in the War of Independence as we were breaking from Britain. They gave themselves Irish versions of, of names. So my father was called Roderick, but he was always known as Rory. So I was named after him, but I was known as Roddy to distinguish me from my father. So that's a long answer to... Um, wow. Okay. Now, does yeah. it mean anything? And now, correct, I get so confused. There's Wales, there's Welsh. You guys are the Gaelic peoples, right? You, you guys yeah, speak Gaelic? The Gaelic peoples. You're the Gaelic peoples. So, My name. Yeah, go ahead. My name, translated into Gaelic, is Rory O'Doul. And translated back into English, Rory yeah. O'Doul means red-headed king of the dark-headed strangers. Really? What I am really in front of you is a bald-headed, short-sighted middle-aged man i love well you could be you could say to me that your name was mort finkelberg and you're talking to me from brooklyn i believe you do you know what i mean it's not like you've got you're not like a ginger you know what i mean you could be as, as jewy as the next author i talked to i'm yeah, just saying I, but as far as i know now i have both sides of the family it's all um irish although my brother did a dna test and most of the, uh, I don't know how you proportion these things, but apparently there was a lot of Northumbria, which is in, you know, Northern England. Oh, wow. We have um, no idea about that at all, but I'm sure that's Viking or whatever. Vikings, know? right. And they all came from, from, from Oslo or whatever and ate waffles. But yeah, the suburbs of Oslo. The suburbs, <laughs> the industrial park, the business park. Yeah. Um, Odul means dark-headed peoples? Of the dark-headed strangers, I think. Yeah, the there dark are dark-headed strangers. That's just like a Game of Thrones. Now, okay, wow, the dark. Oh, my, I didn't know that. I, I'm, I am a character from Game of Thrones. Actually. You are. I know you. Are. I know yeah. you were inspired. Probably inspired. Whatever his name is, who created it. Um, is that an Irish author? No, the Game of Thrones. Is that an no, Irish dude? No, I think he's one of yours. So you can claim him. Oh, I can claim. Oh, real. Oh, good. Okay. His name is what Martin, isn't it? Martin. Martin, is it? I don't know. I don't. I never. I don't like dragons. I stay away from dragons. I like the sex parts, so usually when I watch those kind of shows, I just click on ahead, you know, to the sexual content. Yeah. Um, I don't know if they had sex with dragons. That's too much for me. That's That takes it, you know, too many pegs up. Yeah, okay. I'm just saying. I don't mean to get so raunchy. Let's talk about your book. Um, <laughs> Roddy Doyle, for, can I just say, before I venture off into literary land, I uh, this is the book. It's called Love. And it's by Roddy Doyle, and it's it's not what you think, which is amazing. Don't judge a book, don't judge a book by its cover. This is what just a Guinness. Yeah, is this a Guinness? Okay, so the American editor, because I'm assuming that you have the the UK version or the Irish version is different. Yeah, it's there. There you okay. go. Okay. Oh wow, who is that? Is that Bridget Bardot? Who's on the cover there? I don't know who she is. And she's supposed to be Jessica. Yeah, I think so. Or okay. she could be uh, Faye. She could be Faye. She yeah, could be Faye. I actually thought, but I think probably Jessica. Yeah. Now, do you have any say in the cover art? I, I you know, I, I, I've never had any ideas, but I approve it. I either say yes, I like it, or no, I don't like it. Okay. Okay. I actually did like the pint of Guinness. I, I, at first, when I saw it, I thought, no, nah, it's a bit 
cliched Dublin Guinness Irish writer, men in a pub. But actually, I love, I like the colours and I like, well, the two men are talking in pubs all around Dublin. So it does make a certain amount of sense. Yeah, I mean, for the people that haven't read the book yet, um, the book's about two dudes. Uh, It's, it's, um, dialogue heavy, as I like to describe. I don't know if there's a term for it, like a recitative kind of, it's pretty much a lot of banter and dialogue between the two men. Yeah, the, um, the academic term is a lot of dialogue. A lot of dialogue, right. As I know, a professor at, out of Harvard, I think, coined that term. There's a shitload yeah. of dialogue. And, um, and it's brilliant. And this is coming from someone, Thank I you. don't have patience for books. I mean, I, I, and I like to read, but I read more current events. I'll read like The Economist. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with that publication. And I'll read The New York Times. Yeah. I don't like The Washington Post. But um, this book was amazing, A, because it felt very vibrant to me. And it was hard to get away in because it's two men in their middle, late middle age, I guess, right? I mean, these mm-hmm. are not sprightly. This is not, you know, um, late middle age. And, and it's a lot of talk about the past and, you know, what was missed and whatnot. And basically, uh, uh, Joey, right? Is that right? Joey, Joe. Joey. Uh, yeah. The main character uh, reconnects and leaves his wife, scandalous, for a woman named Jessica who Joe and his buddy Dave were both infatuated with back in the day, right? Yeah, about four, about um, yeah. And then it takes us through this whole journey of them talking through these pubs. They get more drunk and more drunk, and they're, they're not too sloppy. I, I noticed they still maintained a sense of eloquence, even though they were intoxicated. So you didn't play with that too much, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, as a reveal at the end, you know, it's not like, oh, you're my, my brother or you're whatever. It's still, there's a nice reveal at the end that I don't want to give away. But it moved me in a surprising way because at first when I read it, Roddy, um, I was like, I wanted to get more, inv- I wanted more to happen. You know, two people talking. Yeah. It felt like a play to me. It felt like a play. And, and I wonder why I'm going to ask you also if you thought about writing it as a play because it lends itself to theater. Let's ask it right now. Did you think about writing it as a play? No, it was always a novel. Okay. When it started, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, no, I, I wanted it to be read. You know, it want to be read. Yeah, whether it would ever be adapted. I have a play about two men just um, in a pub, just the two of them. There's only two characters. Well, there's a barman as well who has no lines except at the very end. And they just talk for about an hour and a half. And um, there's no change of scenery. It's just the bar and two stools. And uh, that works on stage. It worked. We played, we did it in pubs as well, which was brilliant. You know, oh, that's great. brilliant. I love interacting like that. Yeah, it was terrific. Yeah, it really, really worked well. The theatre worked really well as well, but uh, there was no, if you were to do this as a play, you'd have to change scenery. You'd have to bring them back to the past because there's a lot of that in the book. And really, you know, it plays, there's nothing I, I dislike more than scenery changing all the time. It's just, I just find it really distracting. So when I started it, I just, it was clear in my head, I was writing a book. I was writing a book. Okay. Well, I think the magic that comes from here is from your little inserts in between the dialogue. You know what I mean? It's like what's said and then what's done. It's that subtext that comes out in in like, you know, and that's why I guess that's where I found that very satisfying. And I feel like as the book proceeds, you actually go more towards unpacking that than the dialogue seems to diminish a bit, right? It, It opens up a little more. Yeah, because one of the men is actually writing the story or telling the story. So it's, um, it's not just dialogue, because I suppose if you look at it, it's monologue with dialogue inserted somehow, you know. So it's always his point of view. And um, the, the big challenge for me was getting to know him, because when I started it off, I really hadn't a clue what he was like or why he was telling this story at this stage in his life or what even the story was going to be, really. Uh, I never planned too meticulously, but that's my 12th novel. Wow. You know? Yeah. So um, what I've learned, if nothing else, is that if you keep on going, you'll get to the end because I've never abandoned one yet. And I reckon there's a few more in me, you know? So, um, yeah, you just have, there's a, there's a, I think it was about two years writing it on and off. But what made it a bit different this time around is that, say the last book I wrote before that, a book called, smile took two years to write this one i had written a bit of it and then my mother who was 92 became ill and she eventually died 
and I couldn't, I didn't have much time to work on the book because um, myself and my sisters and my brother were trying to look after her in the last months of her life. And then at the same time, my, one of my closest friends, a man I'd known since we were 12, the first day of high school, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. Oh, wow. And while I, you know, after my mother died, I got back working on the book, you know, maybe a few weeks after the funeral. And then my friend died. And mm. um, I think that strange energy that you have when you're grieving went into the book. And I, I, I had finished it. My friend died in the middle of May and I'd got to the end of the story by the end of June or early July. So I wrote an awful lot. And I didn't, didn't feel that way. I normally, you know, I've been doing this for decades and normally I can measure that a good day's work in the same way as I've been doing it since, <laughs> you know, 1984. And this time round, though, I didn't realize just how quickly I was writing the book. Do you know? And, and I think it was because I was, um, I saw a lot of the, the tenderness between the two friends and their efforts to stay, you know, even though they, they, they don't really know each other that well anymore. And the temptation is just to kind of say goodbye and never meet again. But their efforts, I think both of their efforts to just hold on to each other for a while longer and see if they can work their way through this argument that they've been having all night. Um, and will they, won't they, will they, won't they. And then the humor that they have, the shared banter that they have, the, the old stories and jokes and crazy occasions that they can reminisce about or that Davy can describe. I think a lot of that was because of my friend Ronnie's um, illness and then his death, Do you know. So, so did that uh, inform you in terms of the, the Davy taking care of his dad and, 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 and those final moments? Way, or did that come in from the beginning? Did you want to do that from the get-go before you found oh, out your friend was ill? I, that was my last, my, my, without going into too much detail, my mother's last week or so were in, in circumstances similar to the end of the book. Okay. But, okay. The, you know, and I just liked the, the location. It's a real place in Dublin. And it struck me that it was, a, if you're going to have a polite argument or if you're going to try to resolve your difficulties, it was the perfect place. Huh. <laughs> you, can't have a bla you can't have a blazing row in that place, you know? Right, right, so, right. Um, and it struck me, I'd use, I mean, the, the circumstances were different. I mean, I wasn't alone. It was my mother who died in that particular circumstance. I was with my two sisters. Uh, so I actually contacted them and said, this is what I'm going to do. Is that okay? And they were fine with it. Yeah. Well, that's nice so of you. I kind of typically enough as a writer, I, I took out my sisters and brought in a total stranger. <laughs> anyway, the story isn't about me, but the, 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 um, the atmosphere I think was, uh, very similar, I think to my, my mother's last moments. And that's, um, it just struck me as a, a reasonable thing to do, you know, and I found, you know, if, we, if we'd been having this conversation 10, 20 years ago, and if you said, are the stories, has it anything to do with you? I'd have immediately said no. And at a level, at a certain level, I'd still say no, it's not autobiographical, but I do realize as I get older that all these little things that happen to you during your life or things you see and things you do, in a way, you're kind of putting them behind your ear to use as possible material later on, you know? Well, I think that's the one advantage, not one, there's many advantages about being an artist, is that it allows you, even in the darkest of times, to remove yourself, not remove yourself emotionally, you can feel it deeply, but because you're always seeing it as also material for creation, yeah. you kind of, it gives you a little safety net, and you're kind yeah. of watching your own movie of your own life in a way, and I think that yeah. people that aren't artists can get enveloped in a way that's different, I don't know, does that make sense? It does make complete sense. I mean, Dublin here, we, the lockdown here started in March and then we had a few months in the summer where it was lifted, but we've been back in this lockdown, I think for about a month and we've another three weeks to go to see what happens then at the run up to Christmas. So it's been, you know, our lives have been restricted all that time, but from the very, from almost from the very beginning, I've been looking like, you know, thinking about Oh, there's a story here. So I've written five short stories that are moments in the lockdown. And I'm looking around almost for excuses to write a story. So I'm actually using the lockdown. Whereas if I wasn't using the lockdown, I think I'd be quite distressed because it yeah, is so. Of course. Well, it is so confining, you know. 
it, it, I mean, I don't know, as a writer, I find it, you know, I think as, an, as me, myself, as a creator, I, I find writers have the best, the best time right now during lockdown. I don't think the lifestyle's changed as much. You're like, I'm writing from home. Oh, look, I'm writing from home. You know, yeah. I don't feel like the lifestyle's been so dramatically shifted. It's not like you're a CNN correspondent yeah. traveling to Namibia. But, yeah. it's, you know, when I first started reading, it, obviously, you know, I know that that old cliche of write what you know, and in, in today's woke society that really is kind of getting constricted that you're not going to write a book about a small boy growing up in Johannesburg, you know, even if you do your research. Um, so I know you've always written kind of not close to home, but in your milieu, so to speak, in this world that you live in and, and you know, but when I thought, I thought to myself, did, did Roddy go through some sort of, I know it's not midlife crisis because obviously that's what Davey wants to reduce it to, this desire to get back and yeah. leave his wife. You know, it's not mm. that and it's not sex and it's not about reclaiming his youth and they talk mm. about women. That was the hardest part for me to talk about women's double chin or things sagging and I'm like, he's such a dude. Oh, you fucking men. But is it something that you were feeling? Is it, did you have regrets in your own life? And I mean, I'm assuming you're still married. Was your wife like trying to think if there's any sort of subtext here that she should be alerted to? Tell me a little bit about that. Not that she said, no, but okay. I mean, it's not a midlife crisis. I mean, mathematically speaking, if, if, if I'm at <laughs> midlife stage, I'm going to live to 124. Great, uh, delightful. Which, you never know. Which is highly unlikely and actually not particularly welcome either. <laughs> um, and I deliberately, he doesn't leave his wife for a younger woman, which is yeah. the cliche, isn't yeah. it? She's actually maybe a year or two older than him. Right. Um, so it's a different thing that's going on. What it is, I don't really know. Regret, it's more, a, it's that notion that, you know, I'm sitting here perfectly content uh, but you, you, sometimes it maybe we go backwards and we think, what have I done that? What have I said yes instead of no? What have I hadn't? You know, these right. sometimes whimsical things, bits of luck, um, bits of bad luck, bits of good luck. And sometimes it's just pure fluke, you know? Yeah. And um, so what I was thinking in terms of was the, the, the visual spark came years ago. I used to teach in a high school and it was co-ed, public as in, not in the British sense of private, but public as in a state school, you know. Like in America. Work, yeah, working class area, very close to where I grew up, uh, called a community school. And it was great. I mean, I was there 14 years and I really, really liked it. But it was closing down. And there was an open invitation to anybody who'd ever been associated with the school to come down on a Friday evening to say goodbye, you know? And they asked the teachers, the old teachers, if they had an old classroom to stand at the door of the classroom and just let the world go by. There were no prayers, there was no singing, no speeches, just people came and went. And it was extraordinary because I left it in 1993 and I'd been back to visit and I don't live far away either. So I, and I kept in touch with people I used to teach, many of whom are in their 50s now. You know, it's, uh, I used to teach grandparents, you know, it's weird. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I was looking at these groups of, say there's a group of three or four middle-aged women coming towards me. And I realized that they were the middle, they were the three or four girls that used to come into my class five times a week to do English and that they were still hanging around together and they still had the same pecking order. There was still the boss, you know, <laughs> and there was still the one straggling along. And um, some of them had been, you know, living close to each other ever since. And then there were others who were living all over the place, but reconvened and re-met regularly. Facebook is a big help there to keep in touch right. and photograph, mm -hmm. exchanging things. But there was, at one point, uh, one... Uh, lull if you like there was nobody I was talking to at one point there was nobody you know close to me or whatever and I was just kind of leaning against my old classroom door and um, I saw in the distance a uh, woman I used to teach in 19 I think I think she left at the age of 18 in 1982 left the school and she was in the at the end of the corridor she'd just come in and I recognized her immediately she was tall and I thought, oh, there she is. I mean, and I hadn't seen her. So 1982, we're going back 10 years. So it was a long, long time since I'd seen her. And uh, she looked exactly the same, you know, from a distance. She looked yeah, exactly from the same. a distance with bad lighting. 
Yeah, well, I hadn't thought about that at all because I just looked, oh, there she is. And it was as if I'd seen her the previous Friday and she was coming up to give me her homework. Right. You know, but then gradually as she, you know, she was meeting people along the corridor. It was quite packed. And then gradually as she got closer. It was like the age was added to her as she came along. And by the time she got to me, she was, you know, a woman in her early 50s. And it was quite extraordinary. It was, I mean, it was like. Um, Watching your you whole know, life go by in, in, one, in one kind of runway well, walk. It's more like her, watching her life go Yeah, back. I know. I, I'm just trying to be kind. I told you, those I, excerpts in the book killed me. But I thought, that's, that's really, that's interesting. That's brilliant. I might use that sometime. So years later, I have a, a, a broadly similar thing happening to Joe. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's this woman from afar, and as she gets nearer, the 38 years are added to her face and a little bit to her shoulders. Still right. the same woman, but she's the same age as him. Well, it's interesting. Um, I interviewed a, a director a while ago, uh, Boaz Yakin, and he said he's in his 50s. And we were talking about, because I, I get frustrated about the double standard with women aging versus men and how the cruelty that women have to deal with, with not only the entertainment industry, just in life in general, you know, and how mm -hmm. men are, have a different standard and how it's acceptable for a man to date a younger woman. But if a woman dates a younger man, she's somehow, you know, it's, it's odd or what the hell is he thinking? Anyway. He said, and I think this is true, that as men get older, and correct me if I'm wrong, Roddy, in your, in your case, he went to his high school reunion. Now, these are people in their early or mid-50s. Right? He said that the men all looked kind of downtrodden and tired, and we're just hoping a bathroom's nearby. I know as you get older, you just want a, a bathroom easily accessible. And the women... What's that? You're describing my country. Oh, there you go. But the women were vibrant... And, and, you know, especially the ones that say that were even divorced or still married, there was this vibrancy and excitement, you know, and, and it's interesting that maybe emotionally in that way, that's where they split. I don't know, obviously, you know, and that's why that men feel that need to kind of rekindle or feel that youth or reclaim or that, you know, that even something new, even Jessica who's not younger, but it's still, it's, she's a woman from his youth. And so he feels, yeah. I'm assuming, younger and alive and just being with her. It's kind of an adventure. He regrets it and doesn't regret it. He regrets what he's leaving because he does actually, I tried to make sure that his wife, Trish, is a very vibrant character. You'd be reluctant to leave that house, I think. Right. Even aside his kids and that. But it was just a little bit of madness, I think, in a way, you know. Um, but I do think, I, th I think you're right. I do think, particularly now over since March, most of this year, when you observe, I think men my age certainly are feeling a lot more isolated than women probably are. I think women are much better at finding excuses to convene and to meet like book clubs and walking and things like this. Whereas I know with my friends, particularly my oldest friends, we meet in a pub and we haven't been able to meet in a pub. Right, if you're not months. drinking, what are you doing? Yeah, you can't be just talking sober. Yeah, so much. I, I realized actually it is one of, the, one of the things I did realize. I only really realized or I gave a thought recently that I'm not really interested in alcohol at all. I drink very, very little, but I do love the pub, you know. And um, I mean, my, my closest friend, again, we've, I've known him since high school, or since he was 12. Haven't been in his house in possibly 10 years. He hasn't been in mind right. since I think we moved in here 16 years ago we might go to the odd gig we go to football matches but basically we meet in the pub we're not interested in walking the mountains or the hills or you know <laughs> um, well here in California everyone's hiking all the time I'm like I don't fucking hike yeah, I, don't. I don't I call it a hike call it a walk I don't do it let me yeah. ask you a question about Irish culture because I'm fascinated because and maybe maybe it's a working class thing versus not but I find that Irish culture and humor and warmth is antithetical to that stereotypical, what they see as English culture, right? Mm -hmm. Where like the English are seen, maybe I'm wrong, are like buttoned up and they don't let out too many emotions and they're yeah. repressed. But the Irish culture is, is not that, it, or is uh, it? I think as much as anything, it probably there's a certain looseness with the language here, which isn't the case, say, in middle class England. I think it's a class thing as much as anything else, and maybe geographical. I mean, you're right when you talk about it being buttoned up. But if you go to Liverpool or Newcastle, for example, particularly on a Friday night, normally it's mad. Okay. And it's funny. And there's a lot of playfulness with the language. And I think that's a class thing. Working class people just let themselves go. 
Okay, so it is more about that they do express their emotions, they communicate their emotions. There's not this kind of passive aggressive thing that I assume I'm, you know, this is my my assumption about English society where people don't, you know, there's not that outwardly effusive emotion that you see in Italian culture, French, you know, the the warmer climates. I don't know if the climate has anything to do with it, Iris. Um, you know, because given the rain that hits Ireland all the time, we should be the least communicate. Yeah, <laughs> you should be a dark people. No, I hear Whereas you. The dark, the dark strangers, the dark-haired strangers. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's dangerous, I think, to oversimplify. But I do think, I know from experience, because I've been in London a lot, and, you know, if there's a book event or something like right. that, then it tends to stop quite quickly. It tends to stop at nine o'clock and people go home. Whereas in <laughs> Ireland, it'd be nine o'clock, but it'll be nine o'clock the following morning. You know? Well, I just so, love, I'm always fascinated by death and how different cultures process death. And this Irish wake was always something that I found fascinating and the ability to find joy in the passing. And is that, is that re related to religion at all? You know, like, how do you see it? I really don't know. We do funerals better. I know that. We and again, I've been to funerals in the UK, and they're hopeless. They're a, you know, they're a yeah, they're lock. a sad affair. It's <laughs> not yeah. a nice thing to say. Yeah, right. they're terrible. Uh, terrible. Considering you know, you're, you're paying respect to somebody who spent sixty, seventy, eighty, maybe more sadly, ten years on the planet, and um, it's all over in a couple of hours, and they go their separate ways. Whereas. Right. Um, I've been to, you know, funerals here are generally better. People actually enjoy them. You get together. You don't necessarily talk about the guy or the woman who's just died, but it's a reunion somehow. And um, there's a lot of laughter. Yeah, that's what I'm oh. saying. That's what always seemed very salient aspect of an Irish, you know, funeral or yeah. wake or people are cheering in the pub and drinking and, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's great. I mean, I've, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how many up until the, you know, because you are not allowed to go to funerals at the moment. You know, yeah. it's only a very, very close family. But I would have been a season ticket for some of the local funeral homes here. Uh, season <laughs> ticket holder for so many people falling, <laughs> falling by the wayside. But I haven't been to a wedding in decades. And I much prefer a good funeral. to. And I'm sure I talk, on, I think I speak on behalf of virtually everybody in this country over the age of 40 that we'd much prefer a good funeral to a wedding any day of the week. Yeah, I hear you. I guess you don't have to make face and pretend you're happy to be there. At least you can, you know what I mean? At least you start off with like, this is depressing, but let's have fun. And with the wedding, you're supposed to be like, this is such a joyous event, even though I could care less. Yeah. And there's also, you don't have to, you don't have to be too fussy about the way you dress. You just make sure you're not, sure. you know. I'm never fussy. I show up in sweatpants at a wedding. I just want to be, I want to dance. I want to be comfortable. <laughs> you know what I mean? You show up with flip flops and, and some nice leisure, leisure wear and you're good to go. Um, what was I going to ask you? Have you had, uh, do you feel comfortable or would you feel comfortable? Maybe you have done this already writing a book with a female protagonist where oh, her I've voice is two, the dominant yeah. voice. I have written, uh, one of the, I wrote a book, the woman who walked into doors, which is narrated by a woman called Paula Spencer. Okay. And she's been in a bad marriage. She's been in a 17 year marriage and she's filed, um, uh, beaten regularly by her husband. So the whole writing of the book really is, it came out in 1996, I think. And um, the whole book is about her taking back ownership of her life. And then 10 years later, I was still curious about her as a character. She was 39 when I wrote that book. And then I added the 10 years. I went back and wrote a book. I couldn't think of a better title for it. So it's called Paula Spencer. <laughs> and that came out must have been 2006. And um, again, yeah, so two of the 12 books from, have been written from the point of view of women. And um, how do you feel? How does, that how does that process differ for you? Are you more hesitant or you try to be more sensitive yeah. or do you just come naturally and just kind of just comes out of you? I wouldn't be more sensitive. I don't think that's the, but hesitant, yeah, because it, there's so much, with the woman who walked into doors, it wasn't just her gender either. The, the fact that she'd been in a violent marriage was foreign to me as well, because I never right. saw it. I never witnessed it. Never experienced violence in the house, really, uh, when I was growing up and not here in where I am now. And um, also, she's an alcoholic, and I'm not that either. So there was a lot that was foreign. So 
it took me again two years to write that one. And the first year I wrote very, very little, or I wrote a lot, but most of it ended up in the bin because I didn't know what I was doing really, you know, I didn't know. But gradually I got to know her. So I made sure, I made her basically the same age as myself, which was a bit of a help. Yeah. And I made her grow up in the same part of Dublin as myself, which was a big help really, because I, when she meets her husband, I knew the dance hall where she met, met him. Because right, you kind of were in that world. You knew that world. I, I knew that world intimately. And when he's, um, you know, they start singing to Frankie Valley, My Eyes at Orgy, which would, which would have been in the charts when I was that age, you know. So, and when they're walking home together, I knew the streets they were walking. So gradually I got, you know, and when she's describing how she copes with pain, physical pain after she's been beaten by her husband, my own experience of physical pain was very, very limited, but I could kind of call on it and try to think, well, what words would I use to describe how I would feel? So. Uh, gradually got to know the character. It was just that bit harder. And particularly writing about sex, anything to do with sex, I knew I was on very thin ice there. I had to be very careful about the word, the verbs I used, that I wasn't going to um, make it a male experience thinly disguised, that it had to be a female experience. And I didn't want to avoid it either. I wanted to get, you know, to get in there because, you know, when... um, you know, the woman who's writing the book, you know, I did, the pretense is that she was writing this book and I had to make sure she was 39. So, you know, she's not talking about the past. She's still a lively. Yeah. Sexual being. We go, we go yeah. till late. We go till we can keep going. That's, that's the one yeah, perk so of being I'm a woman. Going. Yeah. We so, don't need to get yeah. any blue shoes. Yeah. yeah I, read, I read that in the book. Yeah. So, um, uh, did you ever do research? Like when you're talking about sexual assault or watch documentaries or try and hear how women talk about their experiences, or do you just keep it kind of isolated to what's going on in your brain? In my brain, I did a little bit of research. I wrote, I, I, I suspected that I know from observation, for example, that a drunk man in a pub is kind of tolerated. <laughs> he's an idiot to be avoided, but he's tolerated very often. A drunk woman in a pub, there's less tolerance. You know? Oh, that's interesting. But, What's she doing here? Why isn't she at home? And even with the best will in the world where I tried to make sure I don't have thoughts like that, I have to try to make sure I don't have thoughts like that. So, um, so I thought that the likelihood was that her, her relationship with alcohol was going to be more hidden and more private and more at home, perhaps. Because she wouldn't be, a, you know, man of my age walks into a pub alone, nobody, and I go up to the bar and I sit and I have a pint, nobody says, oh, there's a man, but if a woman of that age walks into a pub and sits alone, and it's still an unusual sight. A woman. Alone I hate that double pub. standard. It pisses me off. Yeah. It's, it taps into yeah. that whole also notion of the crazy ex-wife. You know, I date a lot of divorcees, Roddy. I'm on the market. I'm just letting you know if you know any uncircumcised Irishmen that are single, because I don't know about any circumcised Irishmen. That's a whole other conversation we can have at another time. But there's a, Facebook, there's a Facebook group, I think. I'm sure it is circumcised Irishmen. Um, yeah. I don't even know if you can even say Gaelic if there's a word for circumcised for... Irishmen. Kim, C-I-M. <laughs> but just the whole notion of every man that talks about his ex-wife, she's crazy, and I'm like, you know what? I'm so tired of this cliche of the crazy ex-wife. Yeah. You know, it takes two. And so it's that whole notion of that. Same thing with the woman at a bar. Like, what's wrong with her? The standard of judgment is different and mm. you know hopefully one day in an equal society someone could be very messily drunk man or woman or gender fluid and be judged equally yeah that's the Absolutely. world i'm hoping to live and give to bestow yeah. to my offspring yeah the right to get hammered anywhere you want regardless yeah, of the rape. right to just be messy yeah. and not yeah not be judged in that in that way um yeah. it's a cause worth fighting for yeah it is a <laughs> when you come up what is when you're writing a book, do you come from a place of what do I want the audience, the reader to take away from the book? What do I want to say with it? What do I want to come away with it? Or does it really seem like, oh, these people are talking to me in my head. I want to tell their story. Or is it both? I want to tell a story. At first, I want to get to know the characters and see if there's a story in them. There always is. Okay. Sometimes it's very clear. The first book I wrote was called The Commitments, and it was about a guy who forms a band. I love that movie. Sorry, I saw the movie. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I co-wrote the script, so I'm happy to, you know. Okay, good. I just rewatched it last week. 
Did you? I love yeah, it. I haven't seen it since it came out. Oh, so fun. I mean, I, I do want to talk to you about that too, but finish what you're going to say and then I want to circle back to my film experience. Yeah, I mean, the story was straightforward enough. I knew that the band was going, you know, he was going to form the band and the band would have a bit of a career and then it was going to break up. So I right. knew the story. There was nothing yeah. to it. Uh, the big job was getting to know the character, the main man, Jimmy Rabbit, getting to know him and making up the other characters. So that was the job. And once I knew him, then the kind of language began to flow because it was as if I was beside him everywhere. When he was... If, if you like, if he's John Travolta with the kind of paint walking, you know, at the beginning of Saturday Night Fever, if he's an Irish version of that, <laughs> I was kind of beside him, holding the brush. First of all, <laughs> so I, yeah, I, go ahead, able, go ahead. I, I was gradually able to see things the way he saw them, so the language began to flow. And it's the same with every other book I've written. You know, there's one I wrote called Paddy Clark, ha, 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 and it's, a, it's narrated by a 10-year-old boy. And I used to be one of them. I wrote it when I was in, I think I was 32 or something when I wrote that. So looking back on that, I wasn't far away from that 10-year-old boy. I don't think I'd be able to do it now. It's too, you know, it's more than 50 years ago. Removed, right. Far away. It'd be a different kind of book, maybe. But it took a good while to get into the language of the 10-year-old boy. And I literally, luckily, my parents were still alive and well, and they were living in the same house I grew up in. They never, they only ever lived in the one house. In okay. And um, I remember one day bringing, he's 29 now, but he was a baby at the time, bringing him to the house to visit his grandparents. And I was in the kitchen and I just briefly got down on my knees, not to praise the Lord for, you know, but just to see what it was like to be a much smaller being in that kitchen. You know, it was really yeah. interesting. Oh, I like that. Yeah, that's very like, physical theater, like actor exercise. Yeah, the table was here instead of down there. It was here. Right. And the refrigerator was much bigger. It was a, a fraction of the size of the old refrigerator in the 1960s. But it was interesting. And I took that home with me, you know, that uh, all the time, you know, you, if you want to imagine what it's like to be a 10-year-old boy, you have to saw your legs off at the knee for a start, you know, and get down there. So, by, you know, and that with that comes the language. So it's all about when I start a book, it's all about getting to know the characters and then gradually... You know, like when I started that one you've been reading, Love, I really didn't know what, I just knew it was about two men who used to know each other and they don't really know each other anymore. So there's a certain wariness at the same time as there's a friendliness, you know, but what I wanted to do was fill the gap between who they used to be and who they are now and just right. see if they can still maintain that friendship. But I didn't know, I didn't have a plot or anything like that, that came gradually. So it's not, okay. And I, I want to ask you, because I hate those questions like, well, yeah, what were you hoping the audience take away with it? I think that everybody should just take away what they want. And I like that yeah. it's layered and you can understand the various layers. I think the, the biggest thing for me, I, what you said now was interesting because I'm five foot four. I don't know what that is in meters, but it's short. And um, I don't wear heels. Like I said, I try and keep comfortable but I experienced the world in a very specific way, being a short person. Now I have an outsized personality, but when I suddenly think about what it's like if you're six foot three, you know, or a man or a woman, and you are towering over everybody, how does that yeah. affect your choices in life, your self-esteem, you know, how you interact with people when you're looking down at everybody? I mean, it automatically gives you a, yeah. affects your brain. I think about women and I don't want to get creepy, but I will. I remember in, in grade school or high school, the girls with the big boobs, the ones that developed much earlier, and they're walking around with a huge rack when I'm still, you know what I mean, not even wearing a training bra. How did that affect how they developed? Not, mm. you know, no pun intended, but and how they interacted, how they saw themselves mm. as a woman, as a man, how that either scarred them or fed them. And it's like we're yeah. all sorry, we're all stuck with this body, but how does that really inform our experience? And that was just mm -hmm. tied to your 10-year-old the amputee, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but well, that's why the writing, it's a gradual getting to know the character. And if you don't know the character, you're not going to get the words to make the book, frankly, you know, you have to get to know the character and that's a gradual thing. It's a bit like getting to know a real person, you know, it's a little absolutely. Bit like well, you know, Roddy, I think it's interesting because if you were commissioned, because I think the, the one thing that's changed generationally and you're a little older than me, I don't know how old you are, so I won't ask. 
how old are you? I'm 62. Thank you. Okay. You're sprightly. So I, I couldn't tell you, whatever you told me, I believe you. You know what I mean? So I haven't, I haven't moved an inch since I sat down here. So you've no, I, no you I have no evidence whatsoever. No, that I'm One thing that, that social media and our culture and reality TV has changed in the younger generation is the oversharing and the ability to spill the most internal and, you know, thoughts, fears, it, it's, bec that's, that's the new normal. And mm. I think that it's a, a culture that less deals with subtext or hidden emotions or things not said than it used to be, um, mm. which is why there's so much reality TV out there where there's no dramatic or elegance to the story because everything's just out there. Um, mm. So I'm wondering if you had to suddenly write a story about a 10 year old today or a 12 year old, how would you tackle it? Or would you be like, you know what, I'm just going to make it happen in the eighties and keep my cool. I think at core, it would probably be the same story. I do a bit of work with kids and teenagers here. I've co-founded an organization called Fighting Words, where we try to encourage, we try to make writing, creative writing, stories, novels, scripts, plays, things like that, as inviting as possible for kids. Mm -hmm. And so I've sat with kids, teenagers particularly, for the last 11 years and uh, watched them as they work and chatted to them and you know, all the stories they have, unless they're doing fantasy or something like that, a lot of them involved, you know, the mobile, the, 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 the cell phones and the other yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And when they're writing these stories, particularly when they're editing, editing them, they realize very often that they get in the way, the phones get in the way, and the texting doesn't look good on the page, you know, and they're wondering how to, so you'd say, well, put it in italics. So then they put it all this texting in italics and too many italics on a page are very, it, it's hard to read. You have it to feels like a brochure. Out. Yeah. Yeah. So they cut it back and they cut it back and they begin to integrate the phone in, in, in ways that are really, really quite clever. So I, I, I think, you know, at core, an 11 year old is still, still an 11 year old. It may well have access to things that an 11 year old wouldn't have had 20 years ago or, you know, I don't know. But, and, it's a scary world, but you know, maybe it always was. I don't know, but um, all I know, I mean, I, I was in the company of a, a group of 15 and 16 year olds last Tuesday, and I wasn't really, I was actually here, but because um, the schools are open here, but nobody's allowed to visit the schools. But I was, um, I was on an iPad basically being brought from desk to desk and chatting to kids who were writing a story. And they're exactly the same as they, they were when I was teaching kids in 1979, 1980, 1981. Same accents, right. same sense of humor, same, you know, some cases brashness, in other cases shyness, reluctance to say much, a reluctance to shut up, all the contrasts. And it, it just felt very, very familiar. And I came away feeling quite exhilarated again, even though I hadn't budged. I was sitting here with a cup of coffee chatting to these kids on and off for an hour and a half. Yes, I just thought, I assume that kids today are exposed to more adult themes and, and, are, and again, culturally, they're just more about exposing themselves is the cool thing to do and the over-emotion, not over-emotionality, but all the emotions, the oversharing has become the new, the new normal. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think. That's, that's something now that probably I wouldn't go into if I was writing something. If I, I think there are areas of life now that I feel, I don't feel excluded from in the sense that nobody will let me in. I feel excluded from it and that it's not my world. And I don't think I could ever get close enough to do it justice. Yeah. That's what I was at. Yeah. yeah. Initially I was saying, was that something you would tackle or it's like, you know what, not so, my bag. No, I wouldn't be able to, because I think, you know, if I was to write, if, if, if um, I wrote a story recently, a very short story about a young nurse and she's come, she's normally she shares the house she's in with other people, but they're all gone home to their family homes. They're working from home and she's alone and she's alone in this uh, house by herself. And she's come off a very long shift in, you know, the intensive care unit and she's witnessed a death, two okay. deaths. Okay. And she's witnessed, she's heard the sound of a body bag being closed over, you know, a man she grew, an, an old man who she became quite fond of. So it's, in a way, it's quite dark. And I was, you know, when I was starting the story, I was thinking, well, you know, I don't know any nurses in my life. I, you know, I'm not, I'm so far away from being a 23 or a 22 year old woman. How do I do this? <laughs> so actually running right through it, she's going to phone her dad 
you know, there you go. And there are little snippets of previous conversations with her dad. And there I was thinking, well, I'm the dad, you know, or yeah. I can be the dad. So in that way, I got closer. And then there was, um, you know, so in, in little ways, I can get close, closer to characters who are so far away from me. But if I was to write a story about, you know, when, happy, when the vaccine arrives and we're all, you know, yeah, touching each other again. Yeah. Right. If I was to try and write a story about that young woman going out with other young women or whatever, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. And I never would. I don't think I'd ever get close enough to it. I might have done when I was 27. I might have had a bash it, but not now. I'm too far away from it. I don't regret it. You know, it's not an ambition anyway. But I think it's just a chunk of life that it will now forever be foreign to me, you know. And that's okay. I mean, there are enough that's women fine, in their yeah, 20s that want to write their stories. So I think that's okay. Yeah. I don't know that um, I'd feel at my age, if I'd feel altogether comfortable writing a story about a group of young women wandering the world anyway, it would feel a bit... That'd be a little creepy. Bit, creepy, Roddy. Yeah, creepy. Well, That's I when your wife's going to be like, we need to start therapy. Do Irish... Because <laughs> it's interesting. I know that I, um, I've written a couple of books and I went to Germany for a book tour. And, and one part of the book talks about me going to therapy. And therapy is still like not common in German no one's it's like something you're ashamed of no one here in America everybody's got at least one therapist you know what I mean? at least one there's different mm-hmm. modalities so you kind of try and get one or six but in in Ireland is is the priest usually the therapist or no, do, is it so. common to go to therapy I don't know I know priests no there may be some elderly people who still would speak speak to a priest but no those days are gone um, the Catholic Church is no longer uh, the force it was in this country. No, it's a, Ireland is a modern European country now. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, when I was a young man, I was teaching in a multi-denominational school. But I constantly had to remind people around the school that I wasn't a Catholic. There was an assumption that I was a Catholic, you know, right. because most people were. And I wasn't. I have no religion at all. And I constantly had to say, I'm not a Catholic. So, you know, that, will you bring your class down to the church? No. I won't, you know, and I didn't want to be aggressive, but I had to constantly assert my right not to bring people down to the church. Yeah. But these days, nobody could, it wouldn't be an issue now. It's not, it's of no interest whatsoever, you know, so those days are gone. As to people going to therapy, yeah, they do. Proportions, I haven't a clue. Okay. I really don't know. Right, it's right. not something that comes. It's not something that comes up in conversation an awful lot. I do, I do know that. Yeah. See, in America, that's all people talk about: hiking and therapy. I mean, those are really the two pastimes. Besides, if you're trying to avoid a Trump-Biden conversation, you talk about how your last therapy session went. You know, I end up meeting a dude. I don't know if they had these in, in Ireland. I met a dude who was a Freemason. I don't know those guys are still around. He's a practicing Freemason. Right. Well, no, I don't know if I've ever met one. Yeah, he was I weird. They are. I know they, they, they do have a glorious building here in Dublin, a really lovely building, close to the House of Parliament, so there might be a connection Yeah, their there. buildings are their buildings are always cool, same as the, uh, the Scientologists. You know where there's a lot of them? What's that? Where there's a lot of them. The place, the, the place where you'd least expect them, but there are a lot of um, Freemason halls in Cuba. I've been to Cuba. I don't remember the Freemason halls. Yeah, but then again, I had one too many mojitos. I don't remember what was yeah, going they're on. They're kind of there. understated, but they're there. And the strange, you know, the strange symbol. The that symbols, they have. the black sorcery. Yeah, it's all weird. If I'm not mistaken, Castro was a Freemason. Oh, that's, that's okay. Then that makes, that computes then. Good old <laughs> Fidelio. Um, Roddy, I'd love to read an excerpt with you. If you, if you, would you read an excerpt from the book? Yeah. Um, I want to tell everybody to buy the book, by the way, because just listen to the podcast is irrelevant if you don't read love and if you can get this copy the only thing i don't like about your copy personally is that the, the the brilliant thing about books is that it leaves things up to the imagination you can get your imagination squashed when you end up seeing the movie version but i don't want jessica personified for me on the cover yeah but it may not be her all right, whatever. Well, maybe, I mean, it's... it's I get so your chic. point. I think you might be right. There's a Canadian, a different cover on the Canadian book, and it's a cello. Oh, see, that? that's so sexual, too. Cello. Love it. Yes, I thought it was a musical instrument. I, oh, yeah. I must look at that cover again and see what you mean. Well, cellos are hot. <laughs> um, I mean, come on. There's just that when you see a female cellist, it's that cliche of the stance and where that phallic symbol is positioned. I mean, come on now. It's, this might be in your subconscious. This whole cello thing, this might have come out. You have no idea where it's coming from. I was having you on, actually. It is about the sexiest thing you can possibly see. <laughs> a woman with a cello. Come on. 
<laughs> I mean, look, a woman with a, with an oboe it can be equally enticing depending on how she can hold it, but you have to be a pretty skilled oboist to get that going. Well, the best I think is a woman with a banjo. Really? I prefer, I like a good banjo, but you know, look where I'm from. I like, I like a banjo as well, yeah. Um, harmonica, right. okay, so page 43. <laughs> Yep. Um, this, this passage, there's a lot of little bits and pieces that move me. And I love you talked about The Affair because I love that show, The Affair. Dominic West, the actor from The Affair, has been caught having an affair with that English actress, Lily James. That's a thing from the news a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I didn't pay much attention to that. Scandalous, Roddy, scandalous. And The Affair, I ended up interviewing one of the writers on The Affair on my, on my show, just so you know. All right. I thought okay. the first series was brilliant. It's great. It's great. I thought it, it got a bit tedious after that. Well, there's only so much you can keep the permutation. Then it got in the future, and then you had Anna Paquin coming on. I'm like, what? What's she doing here? I gave. I didn't. I like her, but I didn't actually see. I must have given up before she arrived. Yeah. Well, the minute Ruth Wilson got killed off, just because she didn't renew her contract, I knew that they were screwed. Yeah. I liked his him. wife. I thought his wife was a brilliant character. Oh, what she's the best. She's the most complex Ellen, of them all. Maura Tierney. Yeah, Maura she's yeah. She's yeah, Irish, yeah. isn't it? Isn't Maura Tierney an Irish name? She's American, very, but isn't she Irish? Very Irish, yeah. Um, okay, so here we go. Um, page 43. You'll be, you'll be Joe. I'll yep. be Davy. I can read. Yep. I'll read the little stage directions in, the, in between that. Okay, so I'm just going to go from I checked my phone. Okay, here we go. For right. those that have the book, you can. Your Irish on. accent is bang on there. Uh, you want me to do an Irish accent? Let me try and do this. I might slaughter it. Here we go. Ready? <laughs> I checked my phone. I took it from my pocket. No, that's Scottish, isn't it? Had it a is good a look. The screen was blank. No missed calls or messages. You forget everything, said Joe. Absolutely everything. But 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 bit by bit things come back. Colors say. The names of the colours of things that you can see from your bed in the hospital. It's a gradual thing, day by day. The names of things come back to you at random. You realise you're lying on a bed. You're looking out a window. You've thought about this. He ignored that. There's a seagull out there, he said, and a plane. You're slowly filling up with words and the images that come with them. But there's still a huge hole. You don't know why, but you know there's something missing. And it, the whole, I mean, the knowledge, the lack of it. It, sometimes, it becomes more important than the other discoveries. Your son comes in and you know him. You know him. It's not just the moody kid who comes in to see you. You know his name because you've always known it, not just because you were told it. You gave him his name. You know that. And you know what a son is, really is, and what a father is, and what it feels like. It's like your life, all your living. Your experiences are filling you, pouring through you again. Your wife, your other kids, your mother, your job. Everything's becoming sharper. Feelings are making sense. You wake up with an erection and you know why. The word erection is there for you and it's there, although maybe not in a hospital bed, but it's great. You hold the thing in your hand and you know what it's there for and you know and you, know you remember what women are like and why they excite you and skin and breasts and all the other things you've loved, skirts, hair, laughter, and babies and birth, and you're beginning to feel complete, but not. You're certain there's something important missing, something still lost and you haven't a clue what it is. You just know it's there and it's not. And so you get out of the hospital and things become, and things stop being fresh and new and life is normal again. And it's as if you never had the accident or whatever it was in the first place. It's as if you never lost your memory. Day to day, everything seems back in place. Like footballers' names say, when you see them on the telly and knowing exactly where to put your hand, how far you have to lean across so that it lands exactly on your wife's hip when you're both in bed and falling asleep. Your day to day life smothers the ache, the sense that there's something missing. You're back in your life and then bang. Jessica. I love this passage so much. Thank you. It really, um, this, it's these times when, again, when the characters, when they open up, because again, because there's so much back and forth banter that's almost covering up the tension, right? That nervous kind of like, let's fill the void. Let's not have a moment yeah. of silence. Let's just keep the words out in the platitude. But then when this comes out, I'm getting chills talking about it. When this comes out and that description, 
it's such a visceral description and it and it's so permeate it was just so wonderful and then suddenly you're like breathing and then you're holding mm. your breath again and then you're breathing and you can sense this is why I can't wait to see this with real live actors that you can sense when they're breathing together. Do you know what I mean? When they're, oh, yeah. when they're not, when they're holding their breath and when they're in sick. And just this thought, that idea of the, the hand on the hip, the woman's hip, I haven't shared a bed with somebody since 2018. So this was especially like that notion of, of routine and comfort and what feels like home and how somebody that you haven't shared a life with can feel like home and the woman that you mm. actually shared a home with feels mm. like an alternate reality. Like, you know, what is that? What, what is it well, that, you know? You know, I was playing with these ideas in a way. I mean, it's, um, at the core, we kind of like, if you take memory, for example, do you have siblings? I had one brother who passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know, when you're, you're listening to a story, then... Uh, you were you were at the event. Oh, I lost. And they describe it a bit differently. Okay. And the fact, yeah, you're describing. You're you're listening to somebody describe something that you were present at, and it's not as you remember it. And at first, you resent it, and as you grow older, maybe you just respect it. That people we make up our memories and sometimes it's quite stark. There are people who you know weren't there suddenly in the story, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. Um, it happens with Joe. An event happened to him involving a family story that involved a woman with a baseball cap. And he was driving the car and his daughter Holly was beside him in the car and they brought home this story, it's very funny. And Joe's wife in a way took over the story because she's a great raconteur. And she became the storyteller, even though she wasn't in the car. But by degrees, because of the things were happening in their marriage, it's as if she, Joe got shoved out of the car and she became the driver of the car. And when he asked Holly, his daughter, if she remembered his mother being in the car, he felt deeply hurt when she said, yeah. <laughs> really deeply hurt, because it was, it was their story. <laughs> but in a way, he makes it up. And Holly, in a way, is making up her own version. And to get at her father, because she's furious with him. Right. Because he's broken up the home yeah. or whatever. Yeah. She turfs him out of the car, you know? And I think we do that all the time, either unconsciously or consciously. We, we, by choosing words to describe something that happened, we're making up memories that actually did occur. But, you know, when you start telling a story, no matter whether it happened or not, it becomes a story. And I think that's what happens with Joe, is that he gets immersed in the difference between just living and describing life in a way. That's interesting. And, uh, the difference between the imagination and reality just becomes a bit blurred. It doesn't seem an altogether miserable place to be, mind you. <laughs> well, I think that, you know, all we have, and I know this is the cliche of, of like, you know, Buddhism or the power of now, but all we really have is the present. And everything else that's in our memory, it may inform our physical body or our reactions to the present because of, you know, baggage or whatever we have embedded in our brain. But all we really have is, my son is screaming there. Um, all we have is the, is the present moment. You know, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is going through some marital difficulties and they've been married over 20 years and she hasn't been happy in a while. And she says, I don't want to throw away a 20 year marriage. And I said, you can't think of it that way because all you have is the now. I mean, what does that mean throwing it away? You know, like if, if it's, it's like such a, it's just an illusion. It's just these neurons that have connected into our memory, but it's not tangible. It's not real. And I think that's the power of nostalgia that it's the only way or shared experience is the only way we can make those, those imagination neurons feel tangible again is with yeah. a witness and a shared experience. How else are you going to, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I do find myself, I think a big part of my job is kind of that tension between nostalgia and accuracy. I'm not sure. I don't. I, I, you're the second person in two days who's told me that, you know, yesterday and tomorrow are meaningless, that there's only today. Well, I, I didn't say actually, meaningless. I didn't say meaningless. I just meant it's not, yeah. t it's not tangible in the sense that yeah. this is it. You know, whatever mm. happened yesterday, you, like you said, we could recreate a different memory. God knows people gaslight all the time. 
you can literally convince yourself something else happened. God knows with trauma, people do it. You know what I mean? The power yeah. to control yeah. our memory or yeah. not control it and have it come up is pretty profound. Yeah. Yeah. I just find that um, we are, I think, you know, as a novelist, I think, or as a storyteller, I think we are our own stories. And the difference between those of us who write the stories and those of us who don't is that those of us sit and write them and the rest don't. Do you know what I mean? It's all about, in many ways, the, the, the willingness to sit at a desk and just use this stuff. Use your stories, use your vocabulary to put the stories together. And actually, in the telling, they become true somehow, even if they're not, you know, what would you say, objectively accurate. It doesn't seem altogether relevant. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it isn't. It's it's interesting. I, I talked to a, there's a documentary, I forgot what it's called, but but the neuroscience of, of cinematic experience. And apparently when you're watching a movie and something's happening, your brain feels like it's happening to you. And your body right. reacts as if it's happening to you. The same thing if you had, a, you know what I mean? And that's the power, mm -hmm. I guess, of, again, of experiencing and reading and book. You, you don't yeah. have to necessarily insert yourself in the story, but the, the visceral reaction, your brain does yeah. not differentiate. You know what I mean? It's do like, you, do you have the Bake Off over there? Have you heard of the Bake Off? The Great British Bake Off? Yeah. Of course, I love that show. It makes me yeah. so warm and fuzzy inside. Well, I'm, what stuns me is I do too. I started watching it with um, my wife and my daughter. There's three of us in the house, and I'm now the only man in the house, you know? So I was sitting watching it with them, and I became engrossed in it. I love the characters, you know? But I was looking at an episode. The three of us were on the couch watching it last Tuesday. And um, one of the women, one of the contestants, dropped her um, cake or whatever. <laughs> I went back, I jumped like that. And it was as if um, I was watching Friday the 13th. I did really, really react. You really to it. went back. That's funny. And I was oh, so distressed. And I think, oh, God, I hope she saved it, you know. But I, so I, I, yeah, there I was watching just, you know, a woman with a cake and she drops the cake. And it was as if it was a, a really vital part of my life. Yeah. <laughs> but that's so, yeah, the beauty, right? Well that's the beauty of, yeah. yeah. I can well understand that if we're watching, if we're engrossed in a film. It, it, I think it particularly works if you're in front of a big screen, probably, does it? I think so. I mean, I, I, I don't want to cite the study. I mean, it is, but it really is about our biological reaction. You know, I think mm -hmm. that that's why I have a weird reaction to Lars von Trier films. You you familiar with Lars von Trier? Um, you know, yeah, so yeah. what's that one with, not with Bjork, but the other one with the, I think the English or Irish actress, I forgot, Breaking the Waves, that with his movies, yeah. you know, the, the, I don't know, this is not connect. This is a non sequitur. But usually when you watch movies, even if you're watching someone being tortured or, you're always aware that they're an actor in the yeah. back of your head. So even though you're experiencing it, it's not so traumatizing like you're watching a snuff film. But with Lars von Trier, I feel, and I think the actors really are suffering to such an extent, he's causing actual mental and physical damage to his actors yeah. that I can't watch it. So I don't know, maybe that's the, uh, I don't know where I went with that, but whatever. Well, I think I said with, it. That, with that particular film, was the, is the actor Emily Watson? Is yeah, Emma, Emma Watson, right? Not Emma Watson, Emma Emily, Watson. Emily Watson. You're right, yeah. Yeah. I think the reason it was so powerful was because certainly in my, it was the first time I'd ever seen her. So I didn't realize she'd been in something else. You know, sometimes yeah. that can be distracting. That's right. You You're know, right. If like if, Angelina if, if Jolie if, had been in there, I'd be like, she's fine. Yeah. Or that question that people, it's a sign that you're growing old when you're watching something and a, a couple are just having about to have sex and you ask the person beside you, what did we see him in before? <laughs> <laughs> Um, Roddy Doyle, I mean, it has been such a delight. I, I'll, I, I, I hope that Thank um, you. your next book is about a woman with a mullet who grew up <laughs> in um, the sub industrial park outside of North Carolina, you know, like in the outskirts yeah. of um, yeah. I, I can feel it. I feel it coming on. I feel it coming on. <laughs> you can see it and be like, Roddy Doyle, amazing Irish author, really channels, channels the specificity of a woman in her 30s. Um, <laughs> living in the U.S. in the age of this debacle. We won't go to, about the Trump to Biden. I hope you stay healthy and safe. Um, yeah, I hope you, you get to I'm a sure. pub very soon. I hope you find a good wake and, you know, and, and a good wake to go to, something festive, you know, with a good bunch of people. Yeah. Um, and the book is, come, is out. 
it's been out. Get it on Amazon, or if you don't like Jeff Bezos, go to your local bookstore. Support your local bookstore. Go to the brick and mortar store and get one. I got one at Barnes and Noble. I actually went to the actual store. So do that. That's all I had to say. So I had to go on a rant there. Bookstores are dying, Roddy. I don't know what's happening in Ireland, but here in the U.S., they're closing like hotcakes. Uh, they're hanging in there here. Good. Good readers. You guys, you have too much rain. What are you going to do? You're going to read. You're not going to hide. Yeah, have to stay in and read. Yeah. That's right. Um, keep writing, Roddy. I, I love it. Thank you. Thank I know you much. don't need my validation, but you're a very solid writer. Thanks and you have much. an amazing uh, command of the language and, and emotional, and you sneak in the emotionality in, in a subtle way, and then you get me. You got me at the end. I was crying at the end of this book. I was crying at the end of the book. I'm going to write that. I, that the paperback will have that at the back. I was the crying back. at the end of the book. Sometimes I got annoyed. I'm like, well, they shut up already. I did have that at reaction a few times. I'm like, enough. Yep. Shut up. Just work it out. But by the end of it, my God, with the dad and the hold, the hand holding, and he's cold and he's hot and he's warm in the nurse, I was just, ugh. My heart. <laughs> my heart exploded. Um, you're delightful. Thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, www.xraepod.com. Subscribe to the X-Ray Podcast and share it with your Irish brethren. Roddy, share it. I will do, yeah. Share, spread the love, okay? Let them know that Ray <laughs> Lynn exists and is in need of a man, but not really, just in a hypothetical sense. <laughs> I love you all. This is Ray Lynn Casper White signing off. <laughs>